Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. Today's episode is all about euphoria. We are going to be breaking down the second episode because it was nutty to say the least and I need to vent about it. This will obviously have spoilers for episode two and basic spoilers for episode one. I'm not going to get into that too much. If you don't want to have anything spoiled or you are kind of like not cool with theories that could potentially maybe be potential spoilers, potentially maybe. Is that a thing? I'm thinking of like the Marvel fandom, you know, how they don't even like to listen to speculation. They're like, no, 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 no. We hear none of it. We don't even know what a Spider-Man is. Nope. No. I know it's not that deep, but I want to be considerate. Okay. But either way, I will have the theories part time stamped as well as streaming news in case you don't care about euphoria. You just want some news. All of the time stamps will be in the pod's description for your listening pleasure. And without further ado, let's roll the sirens, grab some coffee, then dive into all the drugs and glitter and debauchery that is euphoria. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I will be discussing explicit content, like super explicit content, especially for this episode because, you know, euphoria, while certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now on with the show. So I'm finally feeling a lot better. I had COVID and I like literally could not feel my throat. I didn't pre-record as much as I thought I would. I just physically was not able. So I can now drink coffee, though, because I'm feeling so much better and I won't have like fucking heart palpitations when I drink it. Well, kind of. That always sort of seems to be a thing. But, you know, it's fine. It's totally fine. Today, I am drinking New England coffee in the flavor blueberry cobbler. And I am a fan. I'm really weird with blueberry flavoring with anything. It oftentimes tastes so fucking artificial and it turns me off so much. But for some reason, I don't know, I was in the grocery store and I saw this bag and I was like, nope, done immediately. I like reached for it before my, ow, I just smacked myself in the fucking headphones that are very large and hit my head because I talk with my hands even when no one sees me. And I was very abruptly gesturing how I reached out for this coffee. So yeah, I reached out for this coffee before my brain even knew what I was doing, before I even like connected that it was blueberry. Yeah, it was in my cart. I felt called to it. It was my spirit that knew what it was doing. I'm so glad I did, though, because it is really delicious and it is storming out while I am recording this. Super snowy, super windy, super fucking cold. Just New England things, you know? And a cup of blueberry cobbler hot coffee is so cozy, so cozy. And I need it. I need to be comfy, cozy, caffeinated, the triple C, to get into this episode because this is anything but comfy cozy or caffeinated. They need something a lot stronger than coffee in Euphoria land. So let's start with the what the fucking fuck just happened with Euphoria. If you don't know, Euphoria is a really dark show with unbelievable cinematography, a killer soundtrack, groundbreaking makeup and costume design, and storylines that are beyond crazy. Be fucking yawned. 
And episode one of season two really did make that crystal clear. The first episode was definitely a bit of fan service. I didn't mind it totally because when I think about it, it does make sense. And I trust Sam Levinson, who is the creator and director. I trust him to ensure that all the crazy still has a purpose with some things. He's losing me on other things, but we'll get into that. I will talk all about that. What I do trust him with is Fezco. We saw his background, which, hang on, before we even dive into that, did you know that Fez was meant to die in season one? Angus Cloud shared in an interview that because they cast him off the street like he was just some random, regular, schmegular dude, the character of Fez was never really meant to stick around. He didn't even know how he was meant to die. Like, he didn't know any of this. I don't know why. Like, did you read the script, Angus? Probably not. Angus Cloud literally is Fez. Like truly just watch anything of him in real life. And it's fucking hilarious. And also he's having this like Jack Harlow effect on women. It's becoming crazy. Like him and Jack Harlow are like at the tippity top. They are like the pinnacle of what women want right now, which go Fez, go Jack Harlow. Get it. Get your panties thrown on stage. But anyway, so he was in an interview and he said when he was filming the pilot for season one, Jacob Elordi, who plays Nate, was telling him like, yeah, no, your character is about to get shot. Like he gets shot. And Angus Cloud said, quote, I think that they liked what I did. And so they decided to keep me alive and let me rock. I don't know how I was going out, but hopefully I would have gone out like a G. Angus also said fans can expect to see a softer side of Fez, which we already see. I could cry. Oh, my God. He explained that seeing his background will make his actions seem far more understandable, which check and checkmate. Yes, they do. He shared that we will be reminded that he's still a kid. Like, please remember that these are all still kids in this story. And it's time to see Fez's innocence. And I love that. So just a fun little fact on that. But yeah, we see his background with his gangsta ass grandmother, who I love. She blows out his dad's kneecaps at a strip club mid blowjob because he laid hands on his son. And ladies and gentlemen, that's just good grandparenting. Yes, that's a word. Grandparenting. Love her, even though she's like really fucking awful and teaching him how to be a drug dealer. It's a love hate relationship. We also see Fez and Lexi connect. And this is where I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Not the fan service, Sam. Don't do it. And they seem like they don't make sense. But I think they are naturally drawn to each other. Lexi is really passive and naive in a way. And I think that Fez can find a lot of beauty in that. Fez himself is really serious and hardcore, obviously, and has some edge to him. And Lexi may be drawn to that. She might be really attracted to that because she needs a sprinkle of that. They can learn a lot from each other and we will circle back to them towards the end of the episode. But of course, I want to touch on a few things beforehand. Rue, 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 baby Rue is quite obviously on drugs, lots and lots of drugs. And she's basically in space. She meets, what is his name? Oh my God, what is his name? Elliot, that's his name. Dom Fike's character or Fikey. I don't know. I just know everyone's like trying to act like Dom Fike was like not a poppin' artist. And they're like, oh, he's going to go mainstream because he's on Euphoria. I'm like, bitch, he has like a gazillion streams on Spotify right now. He's not some random SoundCloud rapper from your town. Chill out. 
brain fart, sorry. But anyway, Rue and um, Elliot meet up in this basement at a party in like a laundry room and they share some drugs. And for me, I immediately saw a connection, a toxic one for sure. But I knew immediately in my bones that this would become something serious for Elliot at least. I don't know if it makes sense for Rue as much as it does for Elliot, but I certainly saw something in his eyes, especially when she was like dying and she's like, no, 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 I have some Adderall in my sock. That'll just lift me up. That'll revive me from the dead. That's also the story of Jesus, by the way, in case you weren't religious or anything. Yeah, he was risen with Adderall. We also see Rue and Jules make up and actually become a couple. And it was really dark the way it happened, but it happened. And this is just not going to end well. This is going to be so horrific. Uh, That was my first reaction. I think Jules is going to suffocate under the weight of Rue's addiction and her own emotions, as well as Rue's, because she has to kind of wear all that on her back at 16 years old. So fun stuff. Then we see my least favorite, but also the most scandalous storyline of the season. And thus far, we're only two episodes in. We know shit just gets crazier. And Sam Levinson, I knew when I saw this, was fucking unhinged when he was writing this script. Cassie and Nate fucking in the bathroom at a party with Maddie on the other side of the fucking door, not knowing that it was, uh, oh my God, her name, Cassie. I almost called her Sydney because that's the actress's name. Not knowing. She only thought Nate was in there like taking a shit. She had no idea he was fucking another girl, let alone her own best friend. Crazy. Fucking crazy. It's like a car crash. I hate it, but I cannot stop watching. This made no sense to me, truly. Episode two didn't really change my mind. If anything, it solidified how stupid that relationship is to me. But I do have my theories on why it's happening and the intentions behind it, if you can put it that way. But we'll get into that. I'm trying to do this in a specific order. I'm sorry if it doesn't make sense now, but I promise it'll still flow or I hope it will. I guess I can't promise that. If I leave a topic too early and you're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Just know we'll we'll circle back. We will. The end of episode one was Fez beating the shit out of Nate with like a cracked bottle of Henny or something like big and glass. I like to imagine it's Henny because it's Fez and, you know, this was just great. It just matched the scene. Apparently the bottle was actually like something made of sugar when he like smashed it on Jake Alordi's head. So that was interesting. I was watching Fez beat Nate Jacobs to death, almost to death. We wish. Like Kris Jenner was cheering on Kim Kardashian as she was draped in pearls for that photo shoot. You're doing amazing, I was Kris Jenner. I am Kris Jenner. And Fez is my Kim. Lexi, however, watched on in horror. And in the after show, I think it was for episode two, actually. She explained how Lexi was confused how Fez could be so sweet and kind with her, then snap and be fucking brutal and almost beat a kid to death. Even if she hated Nate, which she does, she didn't think that it was right to beat his face in with a Henny bottle. The second episode picks up where episode one left off, and I'm going to be going way more in depth with this. That was just like a brief synopsis of episode one. So we pick up at the New Year's Eve house party. Nate is being carried to the car and is being driven to the hospital. And let's talk about Nate's trippy montage or flash of what his life could be and how he was now magically in love with Cassie, because I have thoughts. Right off the bat, just going to say it, it's all bullshit. And before I even get into why, 
why. Let's remember Nate at this point has been a football player. Yeah, like he's been a football player most likely his whole life. Smashed his head against his bedroom floor in a rage fit last season on top of all the smacks in the head he probably took while playing football. So it's safe to say Nate has some, if not a lot, of brain damage at this point. Back to the montage. Rue is narrating the scene and says something that really stuck out to me. Nate was in love. He didn't know how or why, but it felt good. She narrates from his perspective, continuing on, and basically explains the differences between Maddie and Cassie, and he strangely thinks that he's self-aware. He thinks Cassie would have been better for him than Maddie, and like blames Maddie for him being fucked up, and da 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 So we clearly know he isn't actually self-aware at all. When he is explaining Cassie or Rue is explaining Cassie through Nate's narrative, it's very reminiscent of season one when Rue was like, Nate likes frilly, dainty, feminine things in his partner like nails and skirts and, you know, not hairy arms, shit stupid like that, like stereotypical feminine things. Nate thinks she's intuitive and emotional and it all kind of reminded me of like this moon goddess woman, like truly the most insane, unachievable bullshit idea of what the ultimate woman should be. Like, I don't fart, <laughs> you know, shit like that. Nate is obsessed with the illusion of this stereotypical womanhood. There was a scene where Cassie gave birth. Obviously, it's just a mirage in Nate's mind while he's fucking having a seizure in the hospital. And this scene was played alongside of the images of his dad having sex with those who were not his mother. The videos that he made of this, because, you know, Nate was a kid and watched his dad railing other people. And he did that at a very young age, which has severe, severe psychological effects, obviously. So we had those images alongside him seizing, alongside Cassie giving birth. We also saw the image of Maddie from season one where she's like the virginal, supreme, divine, innocent woman. Remember when she was like on the bed when he's like, have you ever had sex? And she's like, no. Obviously, that was just like a very hyperbolic image of how Nate saw Maddie. But that's also important to the narrative that I'm trying to set up here. Nate wakes up kind of simultaneously with the same fever dream scene of Cassie having her imaginary baby. And I don't know if this symbolizes a rebirth of Nate, kind of like a restart to his character, at least in his mind, you know, because he thinks he's so self-aware. Does he start thinking of his relationship with Cassie as like a vehicle to a new life? I think his very weird obsession with anything that is labeled as stereotypically feminine and his manipulative, predatory nature is sort of leading him to Cassie. And I don't know if he fully realizes it. She is everything he has said. She's emotional and intuitive. She's got boobs and softness and she's blonde and she has big doe eyes, you know, very easy, vulnerable prey for him because she's also very naive and innocent and just wants to please everybody. I think Nate is really in love with Jules. He just hasn't made the connection yet. He doesn't want to be his father. I think that's where his struggle is. He has made that very clear in episode two with that montage that was kind of like why he felt drawn to Cassie because he thought that him and this supreme woman could live a perfect life and their kids wouldn't be fucked up just like his dad fucked him up. 
his home was in shambles because of his dad and his dad's courtships and his dad's, you know, sexuality and how he hid that. In Nate's mind, at least, that's why his home was so fucked up. So him being in love with Jules, someone his dad literally cheated on his mom with like fucking two weeks ago, more like two months ago. I don't know. I forget the exact timeline, but very recent. And let's not brush past the very obvious fact that Nate is struggling with his own sexuality. And this is sort of him being at the very least transphobic, but certainly I believe he's homophobic as well. And I think he's sort of grappling with this self-hatred because of it. It's a very complex character that Sam's building in Nate, and it's very dark. So Nate, with his very clear and apparent transphobia in mind, wrongfully thinks of Jules as unfeminine. I just know there's an attraction to Jules there. And because he has that and he's fighting it, it's causing him to go crazy. And he's looking for anyone suitable to project that love onto besides Jules, anyone but Jules. Back to Rue. We see her and Jules make out in the hallway at school and Rue says some really sweet shit and Jules was like, wow, I didn't know you were so romantic. We learn later that drugs make Rue more quote herself unquote and drugs realistically are just probably lowering her inhibitions and therefore making her more outgoing and can lead her to be seemingly more vocal about her feelings and thus making her seem more romantic. I think Rue feels like she's being more herself because she's being more accepted because she's more extroverted and outgoing, which everyone loves. But like, bitch, sometimes you just have to accept that we're introverts, okay? Elliot approaches Rue and Jules, and this was super awkward. Rue starts to act like she doesn't know him because that could lead Jules to realize that Rue is on drugs if she makes the connection that Elliot's on drugs or if he mentions it. But Jules picks up on Rue not being honest about knowing him, and she just kind of assumes it's because Rue has feelings for him. We also learn that Rue has been spending several days with Elliot doing lots and lots of drugs. And I think this is a good time to remind you of a critical piece of information we were given in season one. Rue is an unreliable narrator. Let's rewind a bit to the episode when Rue was at the diner with Ali, her mentor and sponsor, Genius Episode. Rue says that something that happened in season one never actually took place, and that's the rules lip tattoo that she and Jules got together. They only talked about getting those tattoos, but what we saw on the show didn't indicate it was a dream or give us any inkling that it wasn't real. It just seemed like a regular fucking scene. So keep in mind with Rue, we aren't always seeing the full picture. The picture might just be completely made up in her head, especially this season when she's fucking 200% zonked out in space. I'm not sure if the scenes we see with anyone else could also be this hyperbolic or skewed even based on what Rue's perspective is. I think the latter might be the case because Rue says in season one something along the lines of Cassie told Lexi and Lexi told me and to kind of clarify how she knew something. And every episode, Rue is narrating for our characters. So everything is from Rue's perspective. She has her own thoughts and opinions sort of sewn through her narrating. And I noticed that we don't hear Rue narrating for Jules often. Not her feelings anyway. We see Jules crying in the bathroom and see her depressed in the bath. Rue doesn't seem to notice any of that. Or if she does, she doesn't share it. 
I think this also shows how Rue doesn't have a clear idea of what this relationship with Jules even is, which Zendaya does mention in her part of the featurette at the end of the show. She basically says that her and Jules don't really have the emotional capacity to have a clear and decisive conversation about their relationship. And that's not a far off concept. Jules is a teenager and Rue is a teenager on fucking drugs. How clear of a conversation can you have? In the same featurette after the episode, Levinson, the showrunner, also says that Rue's exaggerations are really starting to seep through. That is like basically telling us that a lot of what we see is really fucking skewed. He says, quote, this episode is starting to kind of sow the seeds that Rue's perspective is very much Rue's perspective, and she's not always accurate in her retelling of things. She is limited in her ability to understand the other emotional worlds of other characters, and it leaves open the other side of the story, which is Jules's side. Going off of that idea, I do believe more took place when Elliot and Rue were together. And we aren't being told about it. Maybe Rue doesn't want to share. Maybe she simply forgot. I don't know. But I think that there's something more going on there. We catch up with Kat when her and her boyfriend Ethan are about to have sex and she's just like not really feeling it. She has this fantasy of wanting to be dicked down by a Dothraki warlord and like him fucking stabbing Ethan to death in the bathroom. This is very fanfic, you know, which we know Kat dabbled in quite a bit, as well as I believe Barbie in real life dabbled in fanfiction. She was most certainly a Tumblr famous girl. But yeah, I think this is reflecting how the experience of her being a teenage, yes, teenage sex worker. Don't forget, she was camming men and degrading them with her fucking cat mask. We're seeing the effects of that and it's not good. I believe those two things are sort of melding together and is affecting her real life sex life in a very unhealthy way. Ethan is in high school and is understandably innocent and virginal and Kat and him just aren't on the same page sexually. We later see a scene where she's like making a pros and cons list about him trying to figure out why she doesn't love him. And the camera does this really cool thing where it zooms in on her through her kitty cat mask sort of symbolizing her wanting to be that person again, maybe, or longing for that sort of sexual lifestyle. I think we really see the effect of social media portrayed through Kat a lot in this episode, actually. We see her watching Nikki Tutorials, who is a very big beauty YouTuber, right? And then there's a montage dream sequence with a bunch of influencers pushing the whole toxic positivity movement and showing how suffocating it is because it really minimizes Kat's personal experience and also her potential mental illness. Sam Levinson had a really great quote in the featurette. He said that this scene was a response to influencers giving advice that no one fucking asked for. Love that. Something else to note from this scene, one influencer mentions like, be the bad bitch you were last year. And Kat says it was fake. And they're like, it looked real. And she's like, that's the point. Again, sort of reminding us that what we are seeing may be skewed. Not everything is as it appears. Once Nate gets out of the hospital, Cassie ends up calling him in an absolute panic. And during the call, we see Nate scrolling through pictures that Maddie sent him. It's not him stalking her social media. It's like opening a picture that you get in a text. And for me, this hints at him and Maddie being still somewhat friendly, engaging in text conversations at the very least which we get confirmation on later. But this also shows us that he is not even slightly interested in this conversation with Cassie when she is on the other line, 
very emotional, very distraught. And he said something that shook her. And that was the moment a theory dawned on me. He said, if Maddie ever finds out about us, she will want to kill me, but she will actually kill you. Then we see a montage of Maddie being violent towards others in the past and Cassie starts freaking out. Okay, if you don't want to hear a theory, just fast forward like 30 seconds. I'll be done. I just have to fit this in here because it will feel jumbled if I don't. What if Nate wants Maddie to find out? What if he wants her to find out that him and Cassie fucked and are having somewhat of a relationship? So Maddie attacks Cassie. And you know that if she attacks her, it'll be severe. That way, Maddie gets in trouble, potentially with the police, making her an unreliable source, perhaps, if she ever came forward about the CD that Maddie has. Oh, yes. Remember last season? Maddie has the CD of Cal Jacobs, Nate's dad, fucking Jules, a minor. Yeah, let's remember Maddie saw that. And Maddie has Nate under her thumb because of this. And let's say maybe even Nate doesn't want Maddie to find out. Maybe Nate chose Cassie because she's close to Maddie and can get that disc back. And Nate really has her under his thumb because he fucked her. And at any given moment, he can be like, I'm just going to tell Maddie that we fucked and she'll kill you. And Cassie being the fucking idiot that she is that we learn later when she fucking snitches on Fez, she'll fall for that because she gets very scared. At the very least, she'd lose her best friend and at the very worst, she would die. Or I think both theories could be true. Nate could have a backup plan. Like, okay, if Cassie doesn't get this disc or she refuses, then I'll tell Maddie either way and she'll beat the shit out of Cassie and then she'll be an unreliable source. I know it may sound crazy, but I think Nate Jacobs is crazy. So we have to channel the crazy. I think this is all just a big ploy and manipulation on Nate's part. And he's justifying his really manipulative and awful behavior by saying he's in love, by trying to make himself believe that. I don't know. Very strange young man. Like I said, Cassie snitched on Fez. So annoying. Cal Jacobs just rolled into the house with fucking wino Susan, the mom at the table. I can't stand the mother of Cassie and Lexi. He comes in like his shit doesn't stink, like he's the fucking scariest person on earth. I've eaten things for breakfast that were scarier than Cal Jacobs, please. But he comes in and he's like, well, I'll just talk to the chief of police and he'll just go through your phone. And that gets Cassie all scared, yada, yada, yada. So she snitches on Fez because Nate wasn't saying anything. Now, Lexi, who, again, Cassie's sister, let's rewind, had that cute little moment with Fez. She sees this and she's like, what the actual fuck? Like, you're an idiot. You fell for that bluff. And I think this is going to damage her and Cassie's relationship. I think Lexi sees Cassie as weak. And when she saw that encounter, she didn't want to be weak like Cassie. She took that moment and used it to reflect on her own weaknesses. And I think that we will see her confront all of those weaknesses and passivity this season. Maud, the actress who plays Lexi, expands on that idea to some degree with the behind the scenes of the episode. So I would say it's certain that we will see Lexi sort of grow into this badass. In this episode, though, Rue narrates that Lexi felt like she was passive and never had any courage to say anything to anyone. And the rare moment that she actually decided to say something about Rue's drug use, Rue made her feel so dejected that she backed down. And then not long after her backing down, Rue overdosed. So that had a lasting impact on Lexi. 
And I believe this moment with Cassie at the table was the straw that broke her back. She's like, no more. Nope. I'm done being quiet. I'm done being a weak little bitch. A side note, again, going back to Wino Susan, whatever her name is. I think we're going to see a major confrontation between Lexi and her mom. Like Lexi is going to tell her off. Her mom is very clearly wrapped up in Cassie and however Cassie's feeling and oh no, Cassie's in love and heartbroken and la la la. It's always about Cassie in a way that is so obvious and so unfair to Lexi and Lexi's going to blossom and I think we will see her tell her mother a thing or two and I'm here for it. That's all I want in season two, Lexi telling off her mom. We also see Cassie become increasingly uncomfortable around Maddie, obviously after Nate shook her up with, you know, she'll kill you if she finds out. And we also see Cassie get jealous when Maddie finally shares that Nate was texting her and he was being all cute. And this really shows that Cassie at least believes in her mind that she really does have feelings for Nate. Of course, we the audience know she just loves love and to be loved and to be in love. The idea of love, everything surrounding it. Also, during this conversation, Maddie was in this bougie-ass pool at this bougie-ass home owned by the family she now babysits for. Because yes, Maddie Mama has a job now. She couldn't donate her eggs at 16 in the most iconic scene that only Alexa Demi could pull off. She gets rejected at the egg bank. So yeah, she is now babysitting. And while she's babysitting, she's trying on all of the mother's incredibly extravagant clothes and her walk-in closet. And I don't know, I got a few vibes from this moment. I definitely felt some sort of sensual, we'll say, tension between Maddie and the mom who is played by the lovely Minka Kelly. At first I was like, no, this is going to be a weird predatory situation and I'm really not here for it. I think that's a little weird and far-fetched, but I changed my mind and I will share why in my theories and how I think that will uh, pertain to Maddie and her journey. But I definitely think the mother that she's babysitting for has a huge impact on her this season. Back to Rue, we see her go to Elliot's house for a bit before NA. They're doing some drugs, they're dancing, they're listening to music. And we see this all through her lens. It's very calm to her. And we see that scene parallel with Jules having a conversation with her dad about Rue being a bad influence. The scene cuts before we see Jules give her perspective. And then it cuts to Rue talking about how she saw Jules and was like immediately in love and then she talks about how loss is bigger than love and then she goes on to tell Elliot that her dad died forever ago but it really was only a couple years ago and he kind of points that out he's like it's kind of recent like what are you talking about and she's like no 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 no. it was like fucking forever ago you're crazy this sort of reminded me uh in season one when she's like I don't know I've never really been through any trauma I don't know why I'm so fucked up it's like you literally watched your dad die like yeah you've been through a trauma but again I keep saying it it keeps pointing pointing to Rue being really unreliable as a narrator. When she says, my dad died forever ago, us, the audience, believe that this was forever ago. We don't think it's fucking two summers ago. Sam Levinson is really like putting up all of these red flags for us to catch. Her and Elliot continue on this philosophical journey and they discuss how drugs isn't always a cause and effect thing. And Rue believes that if her dad was still alive, she wouldn't be on drugs. Elliot says that the two may not bring out the best in each other and Rue's like, nah, it's fine. I'm cool with that. Again, showing that Rue is in space. When she finally leaves to go to NA, she's like on her bike. She sees Cassie get into Nate's truck. And something about that scene, I don't know why, but it seemed like it was a fever dream scene. She was all fucked up. She literally didn't even know what to
direction she was going in to get to N.A. I don't know. There's something about it that just makes me think that something was skewed in that scene. But I don't know. I could be wrong. Either way, we see Rue see Cassie get into Nate's truck and be like, what the fuck? That's weird. And I think Rue knowing that if that actually happened is all just adding to Maddie's fucking scavenger hunt. Remember, Cassie's panties are still lingering in Nate's truck in the backseat. All right. And when Maddie gets even the slightest inkling, she is going on a hunt. She is going to interrogate. When Nate and Cassie are in the truck together, Cassie's like, where are we going? What are you thinking? And Nate's just like dead silent, not saying anything. It's just really fucking creepy. He only says, oh, we're almost there. He takes her to a construction site to break up in his grubby, grimy way. He's saying, I really like you and I wish things could be different. And what happened was a mistake. He's such a heavy manipulator. He's going, oh, it's my fault, Cassie. Just so Cassie would be like, no, 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 it's my fault too. And then he says, oh, I just didn't think I'd get so up. And then he just stops. He cuts himself off, knowing that she'd assume that he meant like, oh, I didn't know I'd get so attached or so in love, you know? He wants her to assume that. But regardless, he cuts things off for a second and Cassie runs off just to be found as a damsel in distress does. And of course, he's more than happy to chase after her. And really random, and again, I could be fucking unhinged myself, but there was this airplane sound very prominent overhead when Cassie was running and when Nate was running. And it was like a subtitle as well. It said planes flying overhead, which for me made it seem like it was something of importance. Whether it's a clue as to where this was, because Cassie says in the truck, I've never been over here. So that could be like, oh, well, where is here? Why have you never been over here? Is this like super far? It could be close to an airport. Maybe that's a clue. Or it could be like some big symbolic meaning that I'm just not smart enough to understand. Either way, me and my crazy ass brain are certain it's something deeper. Then Nate casually uh, decides to go to town on Cassie's vagina with his mouth. Um, so yeah, there's that. And he's like, you don't know the power you have. Uh, so cringe. And I think he really meant that. I just don't think he meant it in the way that he wanted Cassie to take it. He didn't mean it like, oh my God, I'm so in love with you. You have so much power over me. I think he meant it like, yeah, you kind of have power over my entire life right now because my dad could go to fucking jail for having child pornography. Yeah, you got a lot of power. We then shoot over to Faye and Lexi and Fez at the convenience store. Fez was so fucking cute in the scene. He's like, oh, what brings you all the way out here, Lexi? And she's like, I just came for a drink. And his face, oh my God, he got so sad. And he so sweetly responded, oh, we got plenty of those. It was adorable. I was liking and loving this couple the more I saw them together, this connection. I shouldn't say couple yet. I'm being presumptuous. And bitch, Lexi was straight up looking at malt liquor. He's like, baby, that's malt liquor. What are you doing? And she's like, no, I know. It's fine. Lexi is fucking shedding her skin this season. She is full badass. She is in her reputation era. And I'm here for it. Really, we know that Lexi went out of her way to go see Fez to warn him that Nate Jacobs' dad, Cal, knows that Fez actually assaulted Nate, if you can keep up with all that. 
Before we get into the Cal Jacobs shit that went down after, can we talk about Ashtray for a second? This poor kid is so traumatized. He is way too alert and so intense and it's very sad to see. And he is on high alert because he sensed the trouble when Daddy Jacobs walked in and was circling Fez and asking a lot of questions, just generally being really sketchy. Ashtray ran to the back and grabbed his gun from like a fucking box of Fruity Pebbles immediately. He was so fast. This scene was so tense and the camera work was really wonderful. It was like circling Fez. Cal was circling Fez, almost like a shark, you know? It was really just wonderfully done. And the intensity was on super mega high because before we went into the convenience store, we saw Cal grab his gun from his glove compartment. So we're thinking that he's going into the store ready to fucking kill Fez. We assume he is going into his pocket to pull said gun, but he's really just handing Fez some money for snackies and is like, I'm just a concerned father. Like giving Fez the nod, like, yeah, bitch, I know, without actually fully hurting him yet. It was really good. This was a really tense, really beautifully shot, really beautifully acted scene. Loved it. I have to say one of my favorite scenes of all time within Euphoria happened in this episode. It was a really short scene, but it was when Rue was going into N.A. And of course, she was on like that old lady butt elevator, you know, the seat that drags you up the stairs and she's rolling up in the seat and Ali is at the top of the stairs and he's like, I see you're still on your suicide mission. And Rue just is so out of it, so nihilistic, so just not caring. And she's like, let go, let God it was just genius. Zendaya and Coleman Domingo are genius actors. Unbelievable together. Chemistry isn't always a romantic thing, in my opinion. I think these two have chemistry beyond. And it's just like when they're together, they're at their absolute best. They bring out the best of each other. I loved the episode with just them having dialogue in the diner. I was blown away, like truly just stripped down acting. And that was definitely one of my favorite scenes of the entire show's existence. We also learn that Rue is very special to Elliot later in this episode during a short but kind of important scene to kind of see how his home life is. It's him and I presume his mom smoking weed together on the couch. And she's like, you don't have friends. Who was that? And he's like, eh, you know, it's whatever. You know, she's one of them. So we learn that Elliot doesn't really have a lot of friends and that his mother is presumably okay with his drug use. Everything seems real low key, but we don't know that. It could be his older sister. It could be an aunt. We just don't know. Yet another short but important scene is the bowling scene with Ethan, Jules, Kat, and Maddie. I believe this was supposed to be like a one-on-one date with just Ethan and Kat, but as we know, she's just completely tapped out, so she invited her friends probably to have a good time and to avoid any awkwardness. And I think this rings alarm bells for Ethan. And if he didn't know already, he certainly knows now that there is some distance between him and Kat. There's also a rare Maddie and Jules one-on-one scene and it's awkwardly about Nate, but neither really know how awkward it truly is. Maddie confides in Jules that she doesn't think love without some darkness will ever be enough for her as she looks on to Kat and Ethan with envy. Such a depressing thing to say, especially for, again, a kid, a teenager. When you're a teenager around that age, you're not supposed to correlate love with darkness. That is so sad. Once a fucking cloud appears, you're supposed to be out of that. Like, girl, get the weight of student loans and the bleak realization that all your heroes have a fucking checkered past and the earth is slowly dying and you have to pay taxes, especially in California, before you even get that dark. Please let the world crush you in adulthood first. Don't be this cynical as a teenager, please. 
I think this scene is important for a few reasons. It's kind of like this uh, idea that we as humans, really as a whole, see surface level only and we're always comparing ourselves to people who seem to be doing better. And I think Maddie is a representation of that. We love to make ourselves feel like shit. Even if you're a bad bitch like Maddie, who's, you know, pretty self-confident or at least seemingly self-confident. We don't know. I think Maddie doesn't really have a grip on what love is. Maddie loves luxury. She loves a lifestyle. She loves illusion. She knows that kind of love, like idolization. In my opinion, of course, I could be way off. But think about it. What does she love about Nate? All he does is feeds into her mental chess game. She likes going toe to toe with him even when it's toxic. That's really not being in love, but I guess that's subjective. That could be love for some people. But I think most would agree love isn't always perfect or simple. You know, you learn to weather storms with experience and with, you know, every new love or new relationship you have. But let's not forget, Nate is not a fucking storm. Nate is a fucking asteroid hitting you directly. And the impact affects everyone in your fucking orbit. Let's not forget, Nate is physically abusive towards Maddie. So no, I don't think she knows what love is. I think Maddie is just as fucking delusional as the rest of the characters. She just portrays herself as more confident. And if I'm being really real, if I'm deep diving extra hard, I think she's mirroring. I think she sees people she idolizes, like that woman she babysits for, or like a celebrity, or I believe it was the women in the nail salon that she saw when she was a kid, and she wanted to be just like them. She's taking other people's personalities and making them her own. I don't think she's really that confident. I also noticed a quick little detail that I did not catch on my first watch. I must have been like looking down at my phone or something because it was a blink and you'd miss it moment. After bowling, Maddie and Jules are sitting outside of the bowling alley and Jules ignores a text from Rue that's asking her to hang out. Jules instead chooses to console Maddie and is insisting that she doesn't get back with Nate because Maddie's like, I'm probably going to get back with him. You know how Maddie is. So this was interesting to me. I think she's sort of quickly realizing that Rue isn't the best choice for her. It's been what, a few days and she's already like fucking depressed about it. Yeah, probably not a good sign. After N.A., Ali drives Rue home and he introduces himself to Rue's mother. Rue is really nervous about this. She thinks that um, Ali is going to tell her mom that she's on drugs, but he doesn't. But he also doesn't say that she's clean either. He says she's got a long way to go. And this is critical because this means that Ali still has Rue's trust, which is very important for her, especially because he's her sponsor. And Rue's mom calls Ali handsome, which, you know, I'll get into my theories and my hopes for that in a bit. We're almost there. In the final scene of the episode, Daddy Jacobs confronts Nate and reveals that he knows that it was Fez, some punk ass drug dealer in his words, beat the shit out of him. And he's like, what in the world was this about? Why is this happening? Probably assuming his son's on drugs. And Nate's like, I don't have the energy to fake this anymore. Uh, Hey, dad, remember that classmate of mine that you fucked? And Cal's face. Oh, my God. It was so great. Absolutely priceless. Nate explains to his dad that he was sticking up for him because Rue and Jules were going to tell the police that you were, you know, fucking little kids. And Cal's like, no, really, I didn't know. I thought she was of age. And Nate's like, yeah, well, Jules didn't know you were filming her, too. And Cal's face gets even more priceless. And it was like, where is the fucking CD? And Nate, as we know, lost the CD. Well, he didn't lose it. Maddie fucking snuck it. And she watched it and she knows everything. Boom. Episode ends. What an episode. So good. 
Now I'm going to get into my theories. I thought I was going to be like quick with my theories, but I decided, no, let's do a full fucking trailer breakdown and everything. So I hope you're ready for that. Starting with the trailer for episode three. Obviously, we are going to explore Cal's struggle with his sexuality. We see flashes of him and Rue narrating and how he grew up in a less accepting time, which he mentioned to Jules before about how her generation has it so much easier being themselves in public. We also see scenes from his past parallel with what I believe was Cassie and Nate making out with different people, like trying to make each other jealous because they kept like looking at each other. It was very reminiscent of Maddie fucking the guy in the pool and Nate groping a random girl to make Maddie jealous. And this shows to me that Nate is actually repeating the same cycle that he had with Maddie after thinking things would be totally different and not a game with Cassie. Who to thunk? Oh my God. The problem is Nate? He's the common denominator? Never. The theme of this episode seems like it's going to be love falling apart. There's a montage of Kat and Ethan and Rue and Jules and then Nate ghosting a very eager looking Cassie in the hallway. As Rue narrates, as you get older, everyone drifts away. Then there is a scene where it looks like Jules is interrogating Elliot and saying, I don't like you with Rue in the background. This could be an imaginary scene, but I don't think so. I'm not getting that vibe, but who knows? Rue is looking at some small bag of what I believe is heroin and we see a few flashes of Cassie asking if she's on drugs and Rue crashing into the door and then an absolutely imaginary scene that was like the same sort of presentation scene as last season when Rue and Jules discussed horrifying dick pictures. This time around Rue is explaining that she never said should stay clean so it's like a justification presentation. Then we see more flashes of Cal's childhood and Cassie putting on this face mask that's kind of creepy looking, which I think is like a metaphor for, you know, her putting on a mask, her taking on a persona, yada, yada, yada. I believe the metaphor and the persona she's taking on is this of the hyper feminine woman. We also see Rue kissing Jules, Nate and Cassie looking far too happy together, canoodling. I believe that's an imaginary scene for sure. Rue hanging out with Fez and Faye, seemingly manic. And something I missed until I watched on the slowest of slow speeds. I don't know how I missed this. Ashtray, the traumatized little kid smashing Cal Jacobs in the head with a butt of a big ass gun. Okay. It looked like from the scene, Cal was sitting on one side of the booth and Fez must have been sitting on the other side of the booth or like a table. And then Ashtray just comes through like he did with um fucking, what's his name? Mouse. When he beat his fucking head in with a hammer. It looks like Ashtray kind of had the same trauma response, let's say, and just beat Cal's head in with a gun. We just saw one shot. Poof. Ow. I just hit my head. Again, I'm speaking with my hands, so I'm oftentimes hitting myself in the head. So yeah, Ashtray gun to Cal Jacobs head. Crazy. It also could be a fever dream scene, just Rue narrating different scenes that could have played out that Ashtray wanted. We don't know, but it's crazy to think about. As I said a second ago, Rue seemed manic in one of the scenes with Fez and Faye. And we saw her last season when she was manic and she was having these like flashes or fever dreams of being a detective. This next episode seems to have a scene that's very similar to that. But she's a businesswoman rather than a detective. And she's like, let me present you with my business opportunity. We see the same hair and outfit in the seasons trailer, like the one we got before any episodes aired. And she's carrying around this mysterious suitcase while dressed like that. I have no idea what's in the suitcase. 
in the series trailer, they lead us to believe that it's full of drugs, but it was really the suitcase in episode one that was really the teachers filled with drugs. It was misleading. And I'm going to loop in my deeper thoughts on these trailer moments as I discuss my theories to keep this from being a total hot mess. I'm sure it's off the walls bananas, but hopefully it's not too bad for you. Hopefully you can keep up. Let's start with the babysitting mom tea with Maddie, okay? I originally thought Maddie and the mama would have some sort of weird predatory romantic relationship, okay? Because there was tension. I think we all felt tension. I don't know if I'd call it sexual, though. Not in the way Maddie wants to fuck her, the mom wants to fuck Maddie, whatever. Not like that. I think that they envy each other and they lust for each other's life. I went to see if Miss Minka Kelly would be like a reoccurring role in the show. I checked IMDb and I expected to see nothing really, but I did see that she's in the next episode, but I didn't see any episodes after that. This could just not be updated. I saw that with a lot of the cast, actually. But regardless, I believe this relationship, however small, is meant to be a lesson for Maddie, which leads me to believe that Minka Kelly's character, I'm just going to call her the mom, the mom's marriage is toxic. It has the darkness Maddie thinks she needs to have for love to be enough for her. And I think that her and the mom have a real conversation about illusions. Maddie has always been obsessed with the idea of being a trophy wife, and that's all well and lovely. But like anything else, there are cons to that life. Maddie has yet to see the dark underbelly of the other people that she envies in life. She doesn't know their truth. I think Maddie is on an independent journey this season, and I think she's going to find purpose within that, if that makes sense. We see her being a really sweet babysitter after not being able to donate her eggs. We see her actually, you know, enjoying it, enjoying working. But in order for Maddie to grow and to be independent, she needs to understand that this trophy wife life isn't all it's cracked up to be. Or literally, as I was saying that, I was thinking maybe it's the polar opposite. Maybe this could be a more positive spin. And the mom's like, no, baby, I am the breadwinning wife and I worked hard for this. No man gave it to me. I feel like the former is more likely. That would make more sense for Maddie's storyline and for the mom having a purpose in Maddie's storyline. It makes sense in my mind. I don't know if I articulated it very well, but that's what I see. Cassie, Cassie, Cassie. I have no fucking clue with this girl. This is a polarizing character for myself, personally. She is everything I hate in a human being. I hate the victimizing herself. I hate the damsel in distress. I just want to please everyone, especially men. I fucking hate that. But also, I fully understand why she is this way or why people in general are this way. I can see the root of the tree. Cassie's leaves annoy me and I want to smack her. But at the same time, I like want to give her a hug and make her cocoa and let her vent and cry at a sleepover then kindly suggest therapy because I want to see her get better and not be a victim and be prey. If I had to guess, I think this season's metamorphosis for her is her owning her sexuality in her mind, kind of fake like Kat did. And she's leaning into it with this unachievable, illusionary femininity. Femininity? Anemonemonemy. I'm using too many big words that may not even mesh together, but you know what I'm saying. She really leans into that traditional idea of being feminine. That's what I think. And I think all of it is to impress Nate or to get him to love her. And she's going to learn the hard way that that just isn't, nope, not going to work. 
Elliot, I kind of have a weird theory on. I don't know where it sprang from. It's just a vibe. I think he falls in love with Rue. And I think he begins taking sobriety pretty seriously because he sees what he's doing reflected with Rue. And I think at some point when Rue's like, no, I'm not getting sober. I don't want to be clean. He leaves her. That or he ODs and dies. I'm really just on all extremes. I'm like, nope, he's either walking away or he's dead. Just like with Maddie. I'm like, either this lady is a boss or she's, you know, the dark underbelly. With Elliot, I really do think that it's either he gets sober or he overdoses. I think that it's a lesson for Rue as well. I don't think this is a character that's going to return for season three. Maybe, who knows? You know, just like with Fez, if he does well. But I think he's meant to be like, okay, Rue, this is what could happen to you. You're a reflection of each other. And that could either mean sobriety or that could mean death. My next quick little theory is about Ali and Rue's mama. I don't know if this is like a theory or just a hope. Yes, I'm asking for fan service when I was just shitting on fan service. But hello, I'm here for it. Not even really for Rue. I don't care. I don't think she'd appreciate Ali the way we do. But for Gia and for Rue's mom, they deserve some happiness. They deserve some sobriety. They deserve Ali. That's all. I want them together. How do I feel about Rue carrying the suitcase? Mm, I don't have any idea what's going on with that. Like I said, we're led to believe in the series trailer that she has like a bunch of drugs in there, like she's a drug dealer or something. I don't believe that for a second. Rue is not trying to get caught up in all that. No, she'll happily sit in the back seat and jam out when she's all zoinked out, but I don't think she's fucking becoming a drug dealer. No, no clue what's in the suitcase though. No idea. Jules, I think, is going to fucking run as far away from Rue as she possibly can, but I think it's going to take a few episodes. I hope she fucking moves away. I really do. I don't know what's going to happen with Jules. I have no idea. Kat, I think, is going to regret her decision leaving Ethan. I, I just do. I think that too many girls think that nice boys are like, oh, you know, dime a dozen. No, I think she'll regret that. My final theory for this season was the result of some super sleuthing. I found the original script for the pilot. It's super easy to find, by the way. You can just Google pilot euphoria and it'll pop up. You can read it too. I learned quite a bit, actually. Interestingly enough, Rue's character was very, very sexualized. She was a self-proclaimed whore and she dressed very provocatively, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that go with that. And I think Zendaya negotiated that down. You know, let's not forget she literally just came from Disney and she was already going to be like a fucking kid on drugs. And I think Rue makes sense not being the same character that she was in the pilot. It didn't feel authentic. So I'm glad that was a change that was made. But more interesting than that, the opening scene of the pilot was a funeral service for Nate fucking Jacobs. And Rue said that she killed him. And then it like flashed back a few months. That was just like the prologue. I think this season, Nate ultimately meets this fate. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm I'm feeling quite confident in that. I don't know if it's Rue who does the killing. If she does, I think it's something drug related on accident. I don't know. I'm off the fucking ledge with my theories now. Okay, this is this is what it is. I think Nate's going to die. And hopefully you don't think I'm totally unhinged. Maybe you're unhinged with me. We're just all down the fucking rabbit hole. Anyways, let's get into some streaming news now. Of course, starting with Netflix. According to what's on Netflix.com, which actually just to save some redundancy, if I don't specify otherwise, all of the Netflix news is sourced from this website. They're a great resource. But production for Shadow and Bone is set to begin this month and roll all the way through July. Busy, busy, busy. And it's going to be filmed entirely in Budapest. 
Josh Berry, who serves as an executive producer on the series, posted on January 9th that there was a, quote, big week ahead, unquote. We will most likely not see season two this year, maybe early 2023 if they haul ass on all their special effects, maybe even late Q4 of this year, maybe, but it's doubtful. Netflix is adapting a brand new show from the 2013 Dean Unkefer novel 90 Church, the true story of Narcotic Squad from Hell. Sorry if I butchered Dean Unkefer's last name. The novel tells the quote real story unquote we don't know if it's actually real i guess of a young agent's downward slide into hell as he falls victim to addiction deception violence and shifting loyalties the hour-long series will be set in new york city where the newly formed federal bureau of narcotics was established on 90 church street the bureau was often looked over despite them going toe-to-toe with the well-organized mafia and vicious drug cartel Kit Harrington is on board to play Daniel Danvers, the brand new agent to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, having been rejected from the FBI over a failed psych exam. He has high ambitions and his expectations are rocked by the methods at play at the FBN. Dave Batista is also on board to play Michael Cresci, a veteran agent at the FBN who doesn't play by the rules and takes Daniel under his wing. Production on 90 Church is thought to begin this year. Manifest Season 4 is coming exclusively to Netflix globally, with filming having started in November of last year. Manifest originally aired on NBC and was canceled shortly after the third season finale aired on June 10th, 2021. Warner Brothers Television, who's the main owner of the show, licensed seasons one and two to Netflix to give the show more exposure. Once the show's first two seasons dropped on Netflix in both the United States and Canada, the show did really fantastic and gathered a huge fan base. Netflix has revealed between June 27th and September 12th, seasons one through three have been watched at least Oh my God, I can't even fucking read that. 214 million hours. 214, what? Yeah, yeah, 214 million hours. Over 214 million hours. I don't know why my brain was just like, we can't read numbers. Too many numbers, no. Flashbacks to fucking algebra. No, thank you. But yeah, between the United States and Canada, hundreds of millions of hours watched. Crazy shit. Due to that insane fan base, Netflix has revived the show and is going to do a 20 episode mega season four that will consist of two, maybe more parts. And the first part is expected to arrive on Netflix later this year. Ugh, I have Bridgerton news, but you know, it's not terrible. It's getting a spinoff and it's going to be all about Queen Charlotte. It'll be a little series that dives deeper into the character that, you know, everyone knows and loves. She's probably the least insufferable, in my opinion. So like this is the best they could do with a bad situation. It's going to be a limited series and is only expected to be one season long. And it's a deep dive into young Queen Charlotte serving as a prequel. Beyond just Queen Charlotte, more Bridgerton projects are also in development. Development, thanks to an expanded deal with Netflix. Beyond the main series and this spinoff, virtual reality experiences, a video game, and other in-person events have been teased. So you Bridgerton fans are getting everything you could ever want. Queen Charlotte is scheduled to get into production this month. I have a feeling nobody's going to care about this, but I do. You know, I'll make it short and sweet. Do you guys remember Tall Girl, the rom-com? It's getting a sequel, which is really crazy because it did horrible. Like the audience hated it. The critics hated it. Nobody liked it. It has like a fucking four on IMDb. 
I loved this film. I didn't understand any of the hate. I thought it was so endearing. And for those of you who are tall girl fans like me, the sequel will premiere February 22nd. Yes, Tall Girl 2. Let's fucking go. Aside from Tall Girl, we have another exciting new film. It's a horror film coming later this year that I have some details on. It's titled Cursor with like a arrow situation, but I think that's how it's pronounced. And it's labeled as a horror slash thriller. And I have a little baby plot from IMDb. A broke student who, in pursuit of an unclaimed $100,000 prize, plays an obscure 1980s survival computer game. After a series of unexpectedly terrifying moments, she soon realizes she's no longer playing for the money, but for her own life. It's written by Simon Allen and directed by Toby Meekins, and this will be Meekins' directorial debut, so I'm excited to see that. I feel like it's going to be more fun than scary, but I guess we'll see. We are expected to see Cursor drop sometime this summer. Space Force. Space Force, Space Force, Space Force. I can't... Faith Force. I cannot talk. Oh my goodness. Oh man. It will officially be coming back for season two. The renewal was announced in late 2020 and production took place in 2021. And now it is finally coming to Netflix in February of this year. I'm really looking forward to Space Force redeeming itself because I thought last season was fucking horrendous and I really need it to not be. We can't do this. No, not with that cast. There were some changes made. Production moved from L.A. to Vancouver to reduce costs and writers are being brought in like Norm Hiscock, who worked on Parks and Rec. So that is comforting. He will join the team and act as co-showrunner and hopefully be Superman. Hopefully that will spice it up a little bit. There are some Stranger Things theories all over the internet right now, suggesting that the season will be releasing in July of this year, more specifically July 15th. I cannot hear July 15th without thinking of that Neo song. Does that give my age away? That's when you know you're getting old and you're like, does that give my age away? You know why we got to fix that calendar we have that marks July 15th, okay? So what led people to this very specific theorization? A pizza van. Yeah. A speeding surfer boy pizza van in the trailer caught people's attention. The company's phone number is on the side of the van, and those who dialed 805-45-PIZZA at that time received a surprise. A recorded message played, the phone number you just dialed is now active. But once you dialed the number a second time, it just played the happy birthday song. Reddit, of course, went nuts with this and was like, birthday, birthday, birthday. That means the birthday of Stranger Things. Stranger Things was birthed on July 15th, 2016. So the new season will be coming out July 15th. And who knows? The theory has legs. So we will just have to wait and see. My next story is going to be sort of a segue into HBO Max. So this is HBO Max news with a little bit of Netflix news sprinkled in. Crazy news, to me at least. HBO Max is set to revive Degrassi and become the mainstreaming home for past seasons as well. I don't think HBO knows that every episode of Degrassi ever is on YouTube. I don't know what they're going to do about that, but please don't take it away from us. So what does this have to do with Netflix? Well, I wanted to assure fans of Degrassi Next Class, that is the newest reboot of Degrassi, that it will not be leaving Netflix. There was nowhere in the deal that HBO made that gave it the rights to Next Class. So that's not going anywhere. I know it's cool to hate on any season of Degrassi after the Manny Craig Page era, but honestly, I fucking loved every single season. 
It took me a minute to adjust here and there. But once I was in, I was in even the next class. I think they did a good job with that. I do believe the new reboot will be insane because it's on HBO Max. We're going to get cuss words. We're going to get all the things. But I think that Degrassi knows its lane. I don't think they're going to go, you know, euphoria direction. I don't think they're going to be that crazy. Everything is meant to be a very real situation. And Degrassi has covered every fucking topic ever. And it shows how to get help how to get out of the situation, or sometimes the very real, very dark events and consequences. I am really excited for this reboot. I think HBO does a great job with their shows. I think this is going to be iconic. And speaking of euphoria, the euphoria trail just seems to drag on here. According to Variety, Storm Reid has joined the cast of HBO's series adaptation of the video game The Last of Us. If you don't know, Storm Reid plays Gia, Rue's little sister in the show. And if you also don't know, The Last of Us is based on a wildly popular Naughty Dog created PlayStation game of the same name. It's set in a post-apocalyptic world after a deadly virus destroys nearly all modern civilization. Joel, the main character, is played by Pedro Pascal. He is hired to take 14-year-old Ellie, who's being played by Bella Ramsey, the bear Mormont girl, you know, the badass kid from Game of Thrones who's like saying everything with her fucking chest. Yeah, this cast is stacked. We love to see it. But anyway, he's hired to get Ellie out of the quarantine zone to an organization that is searching for a cure to the virus. As the two travel across the U.S., they must lean on each other for survival. Reed will be playing Riley, an orphan girl in Boston who quickly befriends Ellie. HBO really seems to be hauling out with this show. I think they know what's on the line for it. I think they know big numbers are going to happen. And they do plan on releasing it this year with everything I'm seeing. I don't know how much post-production is needed, but that seems really fucking quick. Fingers crossed this year. Quick bit of news from Apple TV Plus. We are getting a third season of The Morning Show. TV Line reports that the renewal comes with a behind the scenes switch. Charlotte Stroud will be taking over as showrunner and executive producer, replacing Carrie Aaron in the role. Aaron is developing uh, another show with Apple, so I don't think it's anything malicious, but I think it was mutually beneficial. They're like, mm, well, you know, you develop this show, you focus on this over here. We'll get some fresh eyes and ears on this show, which I think is good because last season. Understandably, there was a lot of changes and a lot of restrictions with COVID. I get it. But last season sucked. And I was so not wanting it to suck. I was like cheering it on. And then by the end, I'm like, there was nothing to cheer on. But I am excited. I am welcoming season three with open arms. That was it for Apple. Now we'll jump into some Hulu news. Just a quick little cool thing. The Kingsman is getting an early debut on Hulu with a very close February 18th release on its streaming platform. That's less than two months after the film premiered in theaters. And this to me really shows Disney is fucking serious about getting fresh content on its streaming platforms. Because yeah, if you didn't know, Disney owns Hulu, like it owns our fucking souls and everything else under the sun. Yahoo Entertainment reported that it is unclear whether or not this will be one of the 20th century titles that Hulu shares with HBO Max, since the original agreement was that 20th century films would debut in their first pay window on HBO, HBO Max. An arrangement had been fortified towards the end of last year where the two streamers would share titles. Basically, it's just like sometimes movies will premiere on both. That's it. So if you see one on HBO, that doesn't necessarily mean it won't be on Hulu if it's a 20th century Fox title. 
And speaking of Disney, let's skip over to Disney Plus. We have some exciting news there. Via Variety, Disney Plus announced that The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder, the highly anticipated revival of the Disney Channel series, The Proud Family, will premiere on February 23rd with new episodes debuting Wednesdays on the streaming platform. The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder will continue to follow the story of Penny Proud, including her beloved family and friends. Cast members reprising their roles from the original series include, of course, Kyla Pratt as Penny Proud, Tommy Davidson as Oscar Proud, Paula J. Parker as Trudy Proud, Joe Marie Payton as Sugar Mama, and Cedric the Entertainer as Uncle Bobby. Oh, I love Uncle Bobby. I'm so glad he's back. Hopefully his hair stays exactly the same. And his outfit. Recurring new voices include Kiki Palmer, Billy Porter, Zachary Quinto, and the guest cast includes Lizzo, Lil Nas X, Chance the Rapper, Normani, Leslie Odom Jr., Tiffany Haddish, Brenda Song, Eva Longoria, and more. Disney Plus also released the official series trailer this past week, and it looks un- Believable. During the NFL Super Wild Card game on Monday, ugh, don't remind me of the wild card. The Patriots got their ass kicked. I'm depressed. Anyway, Disney released the first official trailer for Moon Knight, giving us an extended look at Oscar Isaac as Mark Spector, Marvel's newest streaming savior. TV Line reports that the latest addition to the MCU is described as a complex vigilante who suffers from dissociative identity disorder. The multiple identities who live inside him find themselves thrust into a deadly war of the gods against the backdrop of modern and ancient Egypt. In addition to Oscar Isaacs, the first season of Moon Knight will star May Calumway, Calumway, I hope I pronounced that okay, and Ethan Hawke. Moon Knight will premiere Wednesday, March 30th. And to round out the episode, some exciting Roku news? I know, what could it possibly be from fucking Roku? Who cares? You'll care. You will care. I hope. I promise. I hope. Roku announced its backing production on Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic story. Yeah, this is a documentary on Weird Al. Don't, don't give up yet. I don't care for Weird Al either. I respect the man's parody. He's lovely in that, but I don't give a shit. But it gets better. I promise. There is no release date yet, but production is reportedly starting next month. And yes, this will be free via Roku. Not much more is known about it at the moment, except the actor who will be portraying Mr. Al, Mr. Weird, Mr. Yankovic, whatever he prefers. That actor will be none other than the chosen one himself, Harry Potter, Daniel fucking Radcliffe. Harry Potter is playing Weird Al? Like, him singing White and Nerdy is like, I don't know... I I just see him in the video because that's like the only Weird Al song that I actually enjoy. Non-ironically either. I think the original Ride and Dirty and the White and Nerdy song are both like equally masterpieces. Weird Al had this to say about the casting of himself. Quote, I am absolutely thrilled that Daniel Radcliffe will be portraying me in the film. I have no doubt whatsoever that this will be the role future generations will remember him for. Unquote. Fabulous. We love it. Thank you so much for listening in today. I really needed to vent about Euphoria and there was some really cool news that I wanted to get out there as well. Be sure to check out the pod's Instagram at NCQH podcast, my personal Instagram at L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z. I have an entirely free collection of 31 poems I completed called The Phases of a Great Winter Storm over on my personal Instagram, all curated in a highlight titled Winter Storm. I'm also sharing my journey of reading 100 books in 2022. Yes, I am crazy, but I am actually on track 
track to do so this month. If you'd like to follow along with me on that, that is also being tracked on my personal Instagram. And I also have my larger collection of art and poems titled Myocardium available to purchase on Amazon. And the link for that is also in my personal Instagram bio. You can also follow me on TikTok where I attempt to be funny, but I fail at L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. And today I would like to spotlight an organization that HBO and Euphoria have shared as a resource for those struggling with substance abuse. And before I share the resource, please know if Euphoria is triggering in any way for you, please don't watch. It's just boobs, glitter, and drugs. Okay, let's be real. It's not worth your mental health. The FOMO will go away in a few weeks. People will be on to the next thing. Keep your peace. And with that, I would like to share Partnership to End Addiction. Partnership strives to address racial inequality and injustice, both within their organization and through their work. They adopt practices that promote diversity, equality, inclusion, and belonging in the services they provide, the families they seek to reach, and the people who make up their team. They work to create an environment and engage in activities that reflect these values. They provide free, confidential support for families looking for answers for themselves or their child. They activate the voices and stories of families to help other parents reduce stigma and increase compassion. And they also help providers and communities prevent and treat addiction through better systems of care. On their website, drugfree.org, they share everything from treatment and recovery resources, prevention and early action tips, and of course, ways you can get involved and donate if you are comfortable and capable of doing so. A million thank yous. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong.